told you uh, last week that if there ever was an age without hope, I believe it is this age that we are in right now. It's very difficult, as I said, to listen to any news station without being bombarded with negative news. It's not just the news, it's, it's really everywhere. Is it any wonder that so many in our culture live their lives with such a bleak and cynical outlook on life? They are just constantly uh, saturated with this negativity. And while we certainly understand that from unbelievers who have placed their hope in the things of this world, which are temporary at best, many believers also struggle with living a life that's indicative of someone who has and a great and abiding hope. And this is especially true when we face trials and persecution and suffering. That's when that abiding hope really gets put to test, isn't it? When we have to face something that's bigger than ourselves or that we can't control it or we're unhappy with the way it's trending or the way things are going. And so when that happens, uh, our hope gets put to the test. But hope is what gives the Christian encouragement in the midst of our trials and tribulations of this life because it focuses our affection on the blessing which awaits us for all eternity. We are to live our lives with our feet firmly planted in this world but with our mind's eye set towards eternity. Because we know the end of the story, my friends, don't we? We know how this all turns out. And whether it happens in our lifetime or it happens beyond our lifetime here on this earth. Either way, we know what the end result is for us as believers. We know that we are going to be in the presence of the Lord. We know that when we do, we were going to receive a glorified body, that we're going to have no sin and no disease to, to battle with, no death, no dying, no tears. And so we are to live with our mind's eyes set on that and our feet firmly planted here so we can be as use, as of use for the Lord here and now for what he has willed for us to do, the works that he has prepared beforehand for us to complete. And we're to do it in such a way that others see the light of Christ in us, where they can easily identify. That's a follower of Christ. That's a that's a Christ one, a Christian. That's where that term came from. We're, we're one of Christ. We're, we're a Christian. And just like faith, which we looked at again in, in, depth, in depth in the book of Hebrews not that long ago, hope is a response to the grace of God. And so, but as we shall see in our text this morning, hope is also a responsibility that we have uh, for uh, towards God's grace. Now, look in our text here again in verse 13. I just want to remind you what we looked at last week. We spent really the entire hour on this idea of hope, this idea of hope. So last week we discussed that whenever we see the word therefore in the New Testament, it's always followed by an imperative, a command. And commands always follow instruction or doctrine. And doctrine tells us what God is doing and explains why we should follow uh, the divine imperatives of that command. So in other words, in our text in 1 Peter, because of all the things that we have learned or about our faith in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. This is what you need to do about it in verses 13 and following. So let's look again at verse 13. Uh, and as you can see, there are three commands in this verse, right? There's prepare your minds, there's keep sober, and fix your hope. And the main command there is what? Fix your hope. 
right? The other two are subordinate under that. So the main command here is to fix your hope. The two subordinate commands are having prepared your minds and demonstrating self-control or being sober in spirit. That's what that means. All right, let's see if we can make it past the main command in our text here this morning. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for this day. And thank you, Lord, for all these dear saints that you have brought here today. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide and lead and direct us and that, Lord, as we receive your truth today, that we would put it into practice in a way, Lord, that would bring honor and glory to you. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. For your honor and your glory, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so I didn't give you notes last week, but here's the note I gave you. I didn't give you written notes last week, but I gave you this note. Point number one, and it's actually verse 13c, believers fix our hope on the grace we will receive when we see Jesus. Believers fix our hope on the grace we will receive when we see Jesus. Peter is saying because we have received such a great salvation that he just explained to us in verses 3 through 12, born again into this new hope, all of that incorruptible, undefiled. Because of that, we have a responsibility to live as people who have a great hope. We are to live as those who have an abiding hope in us that doesn't change based on worldly circumstances. That our hope in Christ is rock solid and that it's unwavering and unchanging. So here again, you know, you might ask, okay, well then what is hope? Well, hope Again, it's very similar to faith. Faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so whereas faith is believing God in the present, again, I told you this last week, hope is believing God for the future. Faith is what I exercise now, right? Believing that what God has said in the past and is doing in the present, that's how I operate my life by faith. Hope is is where I exercise that faith for things yet to come. So, faith believes what God has said and done. Hope believes what God has promised to do yet in the future. And again, notice, this isn't a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. So he is saying, fix your hope. Fix your hope. And notice how we are to do this. We are to do this completely. What is it that we're to fix our hope on? We're to fix our hope on the grace to be brought and being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's talking here about the second coming. So Peter tells us, as believers, that we have a responsibility to live each day in the hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the expectation. Because we've received this great salvation, this is how you're to live your life. Well, great. Thank you. Now, how do I do, how do I go about doing that? What does it look like when I'm out here each day just doing the best I can and then the trials start kind of pouring over me? What can I do to make sure I'm fixing my hope on Jesus and his glorious return? Well, that's what the rest of our text is going to explain to us in verse 13 here. That brings us to point number two. So point number one, believers fix our hope on the grace 
we will receive when we see Jesus. Point number two, we see in verse 13a, we fix our hope by preparing our minds. By preparing our minds. You see this? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now again, hope is the main command, but Peter wants you to know that in order for you to fix your hope, you're going to have to prepare your minds for what is going to be happening to you that would cause you to take your eyes off of the coming of Christ. That would, take, that would cause you to stumble in fixing your hope on Christ. Now, some of you may have this in your translation. Therefore, having girded up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. Now, that's a King James imagery, and that imagery is kind of unfamiliar to our culture, isn't it? We don't have many people saying that today. Well, I guess I'm going to get busy. Better gird up my loins, get going here, right? We just, that's not in our vernacular today. But Peter's audience would have understood that very well, wouldn't he? He would. In Israel, an ordinary person wore this basic garment, which was like this long sleeveless shirt, and it usually was made of linen or wool. And it would reach to their knees or to their ankles. And then over this garment, they would wear basically like a poncho kind of thing. And, uh, and they would lay that aside when they were getting ready to go for work. The shirt was, long, was worn long for ceremonial occasions or when, like when they laid a relative to rest or such as talking in the market. But for active service, when they were out working the fields, they weren't doing it in this long linen thing that reached down to their ankles, right? They would gird it up. They'd wrap it up around and tie it up around their waist. And same thing when they were at war. It was tucked up under a belt at the waist to leave the legs free because they're out working in the fields. So Peter's illusion of gird up, girding up your loins is this idea of being ready. Being ready at any moment to take action. And that's what he's talking about here when he's saying prepare in your minds. Now, we get a picture of this in the book of Exodus, chapter 12. Okay, So keep your place in 1 Peter and go back to the Old Testament in Exodus, chapter 12. Exodus, chapter 12, verse 11. Now, Exodus, chapter 12 is where Israel receives its instruction about how to eat the Passover meal before the tenth and final plague of Egypt. Now, nine plagues have already come upon the Egyptians because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. The tenth and final plague is going to be the smiting, of, if you will, of every firstborn in Egypt. Right? Firstborn of Egypt. Every firstborn is going to die. So the Israelites are preparing are, they're to prepare for this final plague and the, the resulting exodus or the leaving by eating this Passover meal. Now this meal was to be meat, was to be eaten in a very unusual way uh, than, uh, than what God's people would how they would normally eat a meal. The meal was the, and the way that they were going to eat this meal was to emphasize, that God's people were about to leave the land of this bondage. So they needed to be ready. 
because when God was ready to move and put into action, they needed to be ready to go. So normally the meal would be eaten in a very leisurely manner. You can imagine, you'd take your sandals off, they'd have been left at the door. Your staff would have been left over there as well. But then this meal, this meal, look at uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. He says here, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. Now they're quickly, uh, rapidly. It is the Lord's Passover. So notice this meal is to be eaten hastily with sandals on their feet and the staff in their hand. In addition, their garments are to be tucked up into this belt so that their feet would be exposed. All of this was to remind and assure the people of God that they were ready to go that God was going to call them into action and that they needed to leave. And so they were to be mentally and physically ready to move out at any moment. So this idea of readiness for action is seen in virtually every other instance of this expression. Let me just give you a few here. We don't have time to look at these. But when Elijah girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel in 1 Kings 18, he was told to gird up your loins, move quickly. Gehazi was told by Elisha to gird up his loins, take Elisha's staff, and hurry to the Shunammite's son who had just died. So again, there's this idea of being ready and then responding rapidly. But there's another dimension to girding up your loins, which involves having the courage or the resolve for what God has called you to do. And we see examples of that in Scripture as well. And usually when God asks us to do something, this task is not a pleasant one and might bring about persecution or pain or suffering. So Jeremiah was commanded to gird up his loins. In Jeremiah 117, I'll just read it for you here. The Lord says, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. In other words, man up might say it today. You're about to do something I'm commanding you to do, and you're going to be very unpopular. Twice in the book of Job, God challenges Job to gird up his loins. Remember when the Lord said, now gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you, and you instruct me. In other words, all right, Job, if you seem to have all the answers, man up bring your solution before me. Tell me exactly how things are going to go. Of course, that didn't go so well for Job either. And so we see that girding up one's loins and preparing our minds means we have to be ready at a moment's notice and then have the courage to respond when God calls us to respond in a certain way. Peter tells us we're to gird up the loins of our mind. We're to have our thinking in order with no entangling doubts or fears or reservations. Our minds should be prepared to respond without hesitation. Whatever God has called us to do, like a police officer, a fireman, or a soldier on active duty, we're to prepare our minds to respond at any moment, and then when that moment arises, we're to take the action the Lord has told us to do. 
So in context then, to keep focused on the hope of our Lord's return requires a sense of expectancy and readiness so that we don't get caught unaware. We need to be prepared. We need to have our minds ready. We talked about this last week. If you knew that the Lord was returning tomorrow, would it change your priorities today? My guess would be yes. Some of us would be looking at the clock thinking, oh, it's going to be another 12 hours before he returns. How many more can I reach out to? Who can I call? They need to hear the gospel. Unfortunately, there may be some who are just like, no, not yet. I've got this I want to get done, and I've got that I want to get done. I would say our minds are unprepared in that case. That's what Peter's talking about. Don't get so distracted and caught up in the things here today. Don't lose your focus. Don't get beat down just because things are happening and not going the way that you think they should be going, where you take your eye off the prize, if you will, where you forget who you are and what the future holds. Don't lose sight of that. So notice here, keep focused on the Lord's return. And we can see this in a couple of passages as well. Turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. He says in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, be dressed in readiness. In other words, be ready to go. And keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will, what? Gird himself to serve. He'll be ready. She'll be ready and have them recline at the table and come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so blessed are those servants. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed this house to be broken into. You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour that you do not expect. What is he saying? It's a little parables to remind us that we are to be ready. Our minds need to be prepared that when the Lord returns, we are anxiously awaiting for that day. And if he came right now, you would anxiously, gloriously fall to your knees in great joy at being in the presence of the Lord forever. What on this earth could possibly compare to that? What is it that you would cling to in this world that would be far superior than what you have in Christ? That's his point. Turn to 1 Thessalonians on our way back to our text here. Stop off there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 
verse 1. First Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the, and the uh, epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you believers, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. You are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and be sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. The fact that Peter applies this concept to the mind means that it is in the mind or the way that we think that is especially important to the way that we serve the Lord. This is important. It doesn't just happen. It means that through the mind that a person is often tripped up, and it's those that tripping up that causes us to take our eyes off of the Lord and his imminent return. Because ultimately, we cannot fulfill our responsibility to, to, to respond to this great salvation we have received in holiness, which is the next great command we'll look at next week. Fix your hope is the first command. Be holy is the second command in this passage. We cannot do that. We cannot fulfill our responsibility to live a life of holiness without first fixing our hope on Christ and his return, and we cannot fix our hope on Christ and his return if we've not prepared our minds to be free from all the distractions the world throws our way. Most notably, when we're in the midst of the trials of our life. Now, what are some of the ways that we get tripped up in our spiritual life by how we think? I'll just give you a couple here. There are many. Here's one. Anxieties and worries are common stumbling blocks to the unprepared mind. When I begin to play the what-if game in my mind, rehearsing every possible scenario, and usually with a particularly negative outcome, I can find myself being tripped up in my spiritual life. I can lose the sight of who I am in Christ and what the future holds for me as a believer because I'm so consumed right now with what if this happens, and what if that happens, and if this scenario happens, well, then what about this? Well, then if that happens, well, then what about this? Ah, we're doomed. Proverbs 12.25 tells us that anxiety in the heart of a man brings depression. The anxious person will often find themselves struggling with sadness and even depression. Consider the parable in Matthew 13.22, right? The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. Here Christ teaches us that an unprepared mind would choke the word of God out and keep it from ever producing fruit or perhaps even truly saving someone. The responsibility of a Christian is to gird their mind, gird the loins of their mind, because worry and anxiety 
bring depression and they also keep God's word from producing fruit in our lives. Here's another one. Comparing ourselves with others is another common stumbling block to the unprepared mind. If you're a person whose mind is always looking at others instead of Christ, you have a mind that's being tripped up because this will create pride, which leads to the, to the fear of man or people-pleasing and other prideful and sinful responses. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn there if you would, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 12. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about comparing ourselves with others in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend them, commend our, commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are what? They are nothing. They're without understanding. He said, listen, who cares? You've set an arbitrary standard up of this other person, whoever that may be. I am better than them. I must be okay. And the Apostle Paul says, what kind of standard is that? I'll tell you what kind of standard it is. That's the kind of standard of a person who has taken their eyes off the Lord. The standard is now everybody but the Lord. So that, these are things that will trip up our minds. Solomon said, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Those are just a couple of the common hindrances to the unprepared mind. There are many more. But how do we go about it? How do we gird up our minds? What should we do in order to practice this? Let me just give you a few action steps you can take to have a prepared mind, to gird up the loins of your mind. First of all, you must recognize unbiblical mindsets that commonly trip us up from girding our, the loins of our mind. you got to recognize the, just a couple that we just talked about. You must take every ungodly thought captive and then get rid of it in order to gird your mind. The weapons that we fight against are not of this world. They're not flesh and blood. The weapons that you're fighting are going on here. They're in your mind. On the contrary, we have this divine power to demolish strongholds. You're in 2 Corinthians 10. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powered for the destruction of fortresses. He's talking about things, lies that we have believed in our heads, and we believe them so much in our minds that we actually think they're true now, even though they're not. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are doing what? Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What does it mean to take every thought captive? How do we practice that? You, you practice that by confronting these thoughts with Scripture, as Christ did when the enemy attacked him. How did Christ respond? when Satan was tempting him to respond in a way that was ungodly. You know what he did? Yeah, he went back to Scripture. So this is what God said. And so this is what I believe, and this is how I will respond. Every time. 
Secondly, believers take thoughts captive by prayer. 1 John 1, 9, right? Confess the thoughts before God for forgiveness and deliverance. So not only do we take those thoughts captive and immediately uh, run them against the grid of Scripture, which is, again, important why you read your Bibles every day and why you memorize Scripture, is so that when those thoughts come in, the Holy Spirit just pulls from this vast file of Scripture and scriptural truth that you have in your mind. And I tell this story all the time. Some, sometimes, and many times I should say, I have visited people who are not able to speak anymore. They may be in the very closing hours or days of their life, but I could sing hymns with them and their lips are singing every single word. I can read scripture and their lips are moving to the word. They know it so well. It's, it's in the recesses of their mind. And the Holy Spirit, my friends, doesn't implant scripture into your head. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He takes the scripture you already have in your mind and brings it forth to the front of your mind and says, this is what Christ says. Now what are you going to do with that thought that just came in? That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's part of his ministry to us. So we confront it by knowing scripture. We confront it. We take it captive by prayer. Sometimes we need others to pray with us as we're wrestling through an ungodly mindset. Don't be so proud, beloved, that we wouldn't go to a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, and say, would you pray with me? I'm really struggling with some thoughts here that are not obedient to Christ. Would you just pray with me? And I pray as brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll stop whatever we're doing and pray right there. Ask God for help in turning away these thoughts. David prayed this, Psalm 119, turn my eyes from worthless things. We need to ask the Lord's help in turning away from whatever is causing us to stumble. How? What other ways do we practice girding our mind? Well, we not only confront sin with Scripture, we continually saturate our mind with Scripture. This is what, uh, to the point where we're living our lives as holy sacrifices, right, unto the Lord, Romans 12. Philippians 4, 8, 9. Whatever's good and pure and noble, think on these things. It's the word of God that sets us free from the mindsets we have been conformed to in this worldly culture. And there are many Christians who've lost their hope, who are not living holy lives, because they quit saturating their mind with the word of God, and instead have saturated their minds with the siren songs of culture. I know this is what God says, but if you do this, you'll be really popular and well-liked. You'll get lots of likes. You'll have lots of friends. They're trying to fit into the world and be accepted by the world instead of being what God has called them to be, which is holy. Peter speaks to each one of us and says, prepare your minds. Get rid of all that excess baggage you have picked up in the world and take captive all those lies that are causing you to lose your hope in Christ and saturate your mind with his truth for the truth will what? Set you free from all of that. You don't have to be beholden and enslaved to all those unscriptural lies the world is bombarding you with. This is what Peter is talking about. Don't let the world beat you down like that. 
You already have the glorious truth. You already know who you are in Christ. You're a child of the King, beloved. And your future is, and your inheritance is undefiled, incorruptible, can never change. That is the fact. And we set our hopes and our hope on that. Peter says, prepare your minds. In order for you to fulfill your responsibility to live a holy night, life in response to such a great salvation that you have received, you have to fix your hope on Jesus and his imminent return. You cannot fix your hope on Jesus and his return if you've not prepared your mind for the onslaught of attacks from the enemy and the battles of your own sin from within. You have to take every thought captive for Christ, go to the Lord every day in prayer, armor up spiritually every day for the battle by saturating your mind with the word of God and preaching the gospel to yourself. our hope on the grace we'll receive when we see Jesus. Point number two, we fix our hope by preparing our minds. What's the next thing we should do in response to salvation? Here it is in verse 13, back in our text. We fix our hope by being sober, or in other words, being self-controlled. Point number three, we fix our hope by demonstrating self-control. Peter says we must be self-controlled, or can be translated sober. What does that mean? Some of you may have sober, and then in spirit you have it italicized, because it's not in the original text. That's the translators trying to help us uh, see what the original intent was. Being sober is a favorite word for Peter. He uses it six times in this epistle here. It literally means not drunk. That's what it literally means. But obviously it has a spiritual action application, because that's what he's talking here. That spiritual application is be alert and be self-controlled. So this noun is used as a qualification for elders and for women, for deaconesses, for men as deacons. Be sober, be self-controlled, exercise self-control in your life. Peter uses it later in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If a literal lion were on the loose outside of our church right now, it wouldn't be wise to go out there for a stroll, would it? I mean, you wouldn't be goofing around, you know, being, you'd be on the lookout for any sign of this thing. You knew this danger was there. You'd be on the lookout. You'd make sure the kids were indoors. You wouldn't send them outside to play in the parking lot. You'd warn them sternly of the dangers. You'd take every precaution so that you wouldn't knowingly put yourself or your loved ones in danger. The point is, if we're seeking to live our lives as holy in this holy manner in response to our great salvation, then not only do you need to prepare your minds for the things that could trip us up, you must not knowingly put yourself in spiritual danger either, my friends. We must exercise self-control and not try to be like the you can't dance around the fire in your gasoline-soaked garments and then not expect danger to be imminent. And yet many believers attempt to do just that. They seek to live their lives with one foot on the path towards Christ and another foot firmly planted in the world. 
And there are a lot of professing believers who are not spiritually sober. They are drugged with the things of this world, and it keeps them from living a life of holiness for Christ. This is what John says about the things of the world. If anyone loves the world and the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in him. We must stay free from the spiritual intoxicants and everything that we create apathy to the things of God. And that includes false doctrine, any types of sin, sexual immorality, materialism. They can intoxicate us and keep us from living as God has called us to be. There is another aspect of this, and that is about the physical soberness as well. There's the spiritual soberness and the physical physical soberness as well. The idea here is to be free of addictions to things that would alter your hope in Christ. That's the idea. Don't don't get to the point where these things are uh, controlling Scripture says, "Be sober, and instead be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Don't be, right? Don't be uh, under the dissipation. In other words, under the control of alcohol or drugs or whatever it is that you feel that you have to have to cope with the world. But instead, put your hope in Christ and be under the control of the Holy Spirit." That's what Peter said. Why do I say that? That because often the way people respond to trials is by seeking to escape their problems with either drug or alcohol. Don't seek to find your relief in a drug, but find your relief in God. So point number one, believers fix our hope on the grace we'll receive when we see Jesus. Point number two, we fix our hope by preparing our minds. Point number three, we fix our hope by demonstrating self-control. My friends, as we truly have this heartfelt, heavenly focus, where we're preparing our minds and are demonstrating self-control in our lives, fixing our hope on the imminent return of Christ. That's what Peter's talking about. It's all kind of this mental and attitude part. That's where it all begins. So this week we kind of he's dealing with this is how you should be thinking. This is how you should be responding. Next week he's going to say and here's how you're going to demonstrate. Getting in verses 14 to 17. 14 to 16, he's going to say, this is what it looks like. Here's what I want you to do with it. First, we've got to get our minds right. And so we'll look at that next week. I'm going to ask the men to come.